The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santapietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. I'm here with Michaela Goldfield, who is an ICU nurse in uh, New York. As part of this podcast series on frontline healthcare providers and listening to their voice, particularly as it relates to getting through the pandemic. Michaela and I had a chance to chat briefly, so I have a sense of your story, Michaela. And what I thought is that we might start just hearing a little bit about what it was like for you to go through the surge and the pandemic, and then hear basically how you got through it, because you really did get through it and survived it. So I don't know if you want to just start uh, telling us a little bit about what it was like, you know, at the beginning and getting into the pandemic. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this. So my name's Michaela. I am 26 years old. I live in New York City. I've been an ICU nurse for three years. Starting, I think the thing that when I think back to the beginning, I remember it was end of February My hospital primarily serves a lower-income African-American population. And end of February, we started getting these really young patients with weird pneumonia, and they were intubated. And um, my hospital, I remember before, right as we were starting to get these patients, they actually pulled all of the N95 masks off the unit. And they told us, you know, you can't have a mask unless your patient tests positive, right? But then we had all these patients and you remember the CDC guidelines said you can't even test a patient unless they fit the criteria, which is they traveled to China or knew someone who was also positive. And my patients, you know, live in Brooklyn, like no one's going to China. So we couldn't even test these patients and we couldn't even protect ourselves. And so I remember I was off for a couple days and I went back to work and they had tested the whole unit and they put up these like neon signs outside the room and I came back and it was like every single room was positive that we had. Wow. Yeah. 
So, so from the beginning, it sounds like it was, you know, what is this thing happening? We're seeing something that's new. Right. We're, we're worried about it. And we're, we're already, it feels like our hands are getting tied behind our back a little bit. Exactly. And from that first week or two, we had a lot of staff who very quickly got sick. But then, you know, going into March and end of March, it got really bad. We had to open up another ICU. A lot of our older nurses, they used all their vacation and sick time. So we were extremely short staffed, but then we just had so many patients. So there were times when we would have three to five ICU patients. I know one nurse once had six ICU patients, which is insane. But things like it just kind of turned into chaos. At times we would run out of Tylenol. Um, there was one night we ran out of Tylenol and the next shipment from the pharmacy didn't come until the next morning. So there are nights we were like looking through our purses and our lockers, like the Tylenol that we keep to crush and give to these patients. There would be multiple codes in a night. And with these patients, you know, we'd code them for five, maybe 10 minutes, but we just had to call it. We didn't have a single patient come off a ventilator for like over a month. You know, I've seen other hospitals have come out and shared their code practices. Like some hospitals would put like three rounds of epi for their medication part for the code. So in a typical code cart, you'll have lots of rounds of epi. So I think most hospitals were changing the way that they did the COVID code. So for ours, we didn't have special medication kits, but typically there would only be three people in the room. So everyone would be standing outside the room and then you'd have one person doing compressions one person pushing medications, and then maybe a person going in and out. And that was to limit the amount of people in the room. But normally when you're in a code, you know, you have like 10 people in there. So it definitely felt weird to be in a code and there's only like two people in the room. And it wasn't that we didn't want to expose ourselves. It was more these patients were so sick that they weren't coming back. You know, I think in the beginning we would code them longer, but then it just kind of got to the point where it was like, no matter what we do, this is not, nothing's working. So then it became, you know, we have to protect ourselves as well. I remember you saying that. I remember you saying really the first month, nobody recovered. And, you know, I imagine people are going to be listening to this from all over the country and depending on what state you're in and you know, even healthcare providers would have had a different experience. So it's interesting to hear from you, Michaela, that really even in the beginning, staff were testing positive. Yeah, staff were testing positive. And, you know, I feel like New York City, now you're seeing Florida and wherever, but we were kind of, we were like the first, and, you know, you had Seattle, but we were trying, now they have found steroids help, but, you know, during that time, that first month, we were trying everything. Like we had tried hydroxychloroquine, we were trying steroids, we were trying different z like we were trying everything. So it really felt like we were the guinea pigs. And well, and, and, and it's actually, and it's one of the things so powerful about your story to me is that, because uh, I'm in Connecticut and we got it a little bit after you, so we had more time to prepare and get that PPE and learn from the, right. but here you are, an early career nurse, and some of what I'm hearing, you know, this feeling of, we don't know what this is, we haven't learned how to deal with it, I'm feeling alone here, you know, right. some of the staff that usually are there aren't there, and I don't, I don't have the tools that I need, so all of that happening at the same time as you're facing 
probably one of the most challenging things you've, you know, anyone could face in their career. What was it like? I think you used the word layered. What did you mean by that? I meant it in the sense of like coronavirus obviously took over everyone's lives, but I think for healthcare workers, it was you had the stress of going to work and within your health system, you know, you have all the problems within your health system, but then on top of it, you're caring for these patients who are sick and then you're afraid for your own safety. The first time I went into a COVID room, I remember I started crying a little bit because I was so scared. Like now we hear it on the news constantly, but then it was still new and we had, we were terrified and then you had your home level. So then, you know, you're going home. I live with my boyfriend and it was the stress of being locked in a tiny New York City apartment with your boyfriend, no matter how much you love them, you know, there's no escape from that. Yeah. So you have that layer and then all of your social outlets, the way that you cope with the stress of your job, that was gone. And then just the level of the constant news info. Like I had to stop listening to the news because uh -huh. I realized that that was a huge, I listened to NPR constantly and that was a huge source of anxiety. Yeah. And it kind of just felt like every part of your life had totally changed. So were you able to stop or at least turn down your, your consumption of news? Cause that's something that, you know, at the beginning, a lot of us were saying, well, you should stop, you know, or cut down on your consumption of the news, but so it's not easy to do. Were you able to do that? I, well, I shouldn't do this, not in a pandemic, but I'll just play NPR constantly. Like if I'm doing something, I have my AirPod in, but I tried to play more music. I tried to pick like funny political podcasts. Mm -hmm. So things that added a layer of like humor or something a little more human than just, I think during that time, because we were so socially cut off from the rest of the world, it felt like I needed to be a part of something, you know, and I felt like I had to know what was going on. But when I realized it officially had started negatively impacting me, switching over to music and like funnier podcasts definitely helped during that time. Because it was a time when like I listened to NPR if I'm doing the dishes, if I'm in the shower um, and just being able to like turn my brain off during just like stupid household tasks, I think was so beneficial. Or on the way to work, I stopped listening to the news um, and would listen to music. Yeah, I think during that time, our brains were just in overdrive and it just helped turn something off. That anxiety turned down the anxiety. I actually want to underline a couple of these things as we go along, uh, particularly because I think one of the messages that comes across in your story is how you were able to you know, survive and, and manage it. And so I think, you know, that's one of the things that does seem important is you, you got to that really early, but getting back, I want to, you know, you, you're, there's so much that you're saying and uh, I, you know, you talked about the fear, you know, and I think not that we're not having some fear and anxiety still, but if you remember half a year ago, those of you on the front lines had to really overcome and put aside your fear and walk through those doors, you know, right in the moment when everyone else was walking away. And I think that's one of the things that, that we forget. It's really helpful that you point that out. Absolutely. And I think there's the fear, but, you know, when I went to nursing school, you know, you're always told that you'll have all the gear, you know, this is America. I think that's what really tripped me up was we live in America. We will never have a shortage of PPE. You know, you'll never have to wear a mask for 12 hours or three days. Um, we wore rain ponchos for a while because we did, that was donated. So I think that added 
anger to the fear as well. You know, we were, right. I think I would have been less scared if I had everything I needed. We felt like we weren't supported. I have coworkers who have kids and coworkers who have immunocompromised kids. So for them to be coming into work every day, you know, it wasn't just about myself. It was you see your coworkers and you see their home lives and I'm young and I'm healthy, but then, you know, my work bestie, she has a three-year-old who's immunocompromised and, you know, you're thinking about these other people and yourself and yeah, it just seems, it just seems like it, we live in a place with abundant resources. It was also hard to see like other, I have friends in other hospitals in New York and some hospitals never had any PPE shortages, but then you had some hospitals had nurses dying because they didn't have PPE. It made me angry about our system. It made me angry that, you know, states, different states in the U.S. were fighting over ventilators, driving the price up. It just felt like we had reached this level of chaos. Yeah, that's really powerful. I'm glad you you remind me of that word that you brought up as well, anger, you know, not just frustration, but anger. And, you know, as an early career nurse and, you know, you have an idea of what nursing is, right, which is this thing. And what you're doing during the surge in the pandemic does not seem to be that thing. You're talking about you have different number of patients. You don't have the protocols. We don't necessarily have the equipment, you know, that you need. And you said, you know, the pay for, for a month, you know, the first month, right. nobody left the ICU even, right? And what was that like for you, you know, as a, as a nurse drawn into the work because you, you care for people and want to care for people? What was it like working with the patients? Well, I want to touch on one more thing that you said. Back to the fear, though, it felt like people didn't care about us. It, it, it was it was so two-sided because it was like you had everyone clapping for you and giving you free stuff. But then on the hospital administration side and the government side, it was like we were sacrificial yeah. uh, in a way. But to the patients, I mean, I had one patient. She was 29. She was HIV positive And she was six months pregnant. Wow. And... She was intubated and she accidentally self-extubated. So her tube came out and there were times when, you know, you have those moments when your patient, when something emergent is happening, you have to, your, your immediate reaction is to just run into the room, but then, you know, you have to put on all the gear. So you have that internal conflict. So I go into the room and I called the respiratory therapist. I pulled the tube out, put her on a breathing mask. And she's like responding. I turn off her sedation. She's responding to all my questions. Her vitals were pretty good. And then eventually the doctors all run in. There's like, well, one doctor runs in with the respiratory therapist. And I had been caring for this patient for like two weeks now. And I felt so attached to her. But I was like, I started crying. And I was like, please, like, give her a chance. Like, no one had come off the ventilator. And I was like, just just let's see what happens. Before uh, intubating her again. Right, before reintubating her. So we put her on BiPAP and she did so well. And I, I said to her, I think I even swore at her. I was like, I need you to fucking breathe. Like you've <laughs> never breathed before. And she was holding my hand. She was like, okay. And, yeah. you know, and, and I left work that night. And I was like, if I come back and she's intubated, I don't think I can come back to work. Wow. And my boyfriend very sweetly was like, you know, if you ever need to not go in, like I'll help financial, like I'll help pay the rent. You know, he was like, any day you want to just never go back, you can. Yeah. But I came back and she was the first person to leave the ICU. Wow. And that's when I was like, okay, I can keep, I was like, let's go. I can keep doing this. Yeah. No, I mean, to me, that's such a nursing 
powerful nursing story, right? So first of all, you're in the room a lot, you know, nurses. And I, I was talking with a number of nurses during the surge here. You know, you guys are in the room. You're establishing a relationship with the patient, which is not easy when they're intubated and, you know, you're getting attached. And in this sort of almost wartime scenario, right, you um, literally put your body there and stand up for this human being that you formed an attachment to and, and, you know, use your emotion and your voice to stand up and possibly change the course of her life. Did you ever, I mean, there were things that were happening so fast and obviously a number of people didn't do well and they're in the ICU. Did you have a opportunity to actually talk either with her or with other patients or with their families after some of them did get better or no, and I think I don't know if I could have handled it honestly. But you know, as I think about the ICU, most of your patients can't talk, yeah. which is uh, for some of us nurses, we love that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, I never talked to her, and that's I feel very okay with that. We would try and call the families, but we were so busy, and that was the other terrible part. The families weren't there, so they would be calling, and you pick up the phone, and you'd be like, "I I want to give you a status update, but." I have four other patients right now yeah, and it's insane. Yeah. One of the things that I heard from nurse frontline nurses was because we didn't allow visitors and uh, some, some families <clears throat> would have dropped their you know family member off. They looked okay. I mean, they were right. walking, you know, and talking. And then of course they, they started going downhill really fast. And, and then you had to deliver, nurses had to deliver the news, you know, he's not doing well. And just how hard it was for families to even believe that because they're not seeing it with their eyes. We also couldn't believe it. You know, you'd be like, what happened? These patients, that was the other thing is these patients were so sick and we didn't know how to treat them. They were really hard to sedate. Like we just felt like we didn't know anything. Um, And we still don't really know that much, but that, that quick turnaround, they would be doing fine. And then they would decompensate so quickly you know, I, you said this thing about you wouldn't request or require that anybody would thank you, you know, but I'm a, I'm sure that, you know, if she had the opportunity, she would, and so many other people would, and it gets to um, this notion of, um, I don't know if this is the right word to say it, thankless, you know, but it's the only word that comes to mind when you think about frontline workers of all kinds and back to, um, and, and, and so you don't do the work because you want the thank you, you know, you do the work because you believe in it, but it, it literally can be thankless. Like in this case, you were not, people were not saying thank you to you, you know? And I think part of the reason to have this podcast is in part to say, you know, for the larger community to say thank you, but back to one of the things that you said about, um, and I want to, it was really interesting about, uh, on the one hand, you know, people genuinely set, putting signs out on their yard, thanking you. And, and right. you know, we don't doubt that. But your experience in the work and in the throes of the surge of the pandemic was that it didn't feel like people cared about you. You know, you were, right. um, you know, uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, in in New York, we had the clapping, which was very nice. We got lots of food. It felt like no one in the hospital cared about us. I knew that those family members cared. I knew that my friends and family thanked me. The general community, you saw it everywhere, but the hospital didn't give a shit about us. And then in the government, I felt like the government didn't care as well. But after when the peak started to end, 
um, and New York City started to level out. That's when you started to see people come out of their houses and more things are opening up. So I think for me, it was like kind of walking this fine line, which is what we were supposed to do, be careful. And wow. But then you saw some people who just like blatantly disregarded all of that. And right. that was really upsetting to see and watch. Even like a friend's story on Instagram, you're like, oh, she was just in Florida. Now she's back right. in New York. Right. Like what? You know, so I actually unfollowed some people on Instagram because yeah. I just kept seeing their things. And I was just like, I don't need to send them a message. Like that's not my role. They know. Everyone knows the situation and knows what's going on. So you are actively making that decision. And so I think this is a time of like, Really, and also like the election, it's a time of like, who are my people? Um, I think it's a good time to like, not, it sounds rude to say cut people out, but it's true, you know, it's such a weird time and you're figuring out who are the people I wanna surround myself with? What is the information that I wanna see or the things I wanna see on my phone? And yeah, and on the train, I have to just keep my mouth shut or I'll move to another car uh, when I see people not wearing masks because I know that I'll be like, excuse me. And they don't, people don't care. So, you know, well, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. So I, my whole life is about trying to understand people's behavior. And I, I've been puzzled by it through this pandemic. I didn't realize how hard it is for people to believe things if they don't see it. So, you know, you literally saw it with your eyes and for people that didn't see it with their eyes, how hard it is for them and this idea of, uh, I don't know if you've heard the, the term moral injury, you know, this, they talk about it in wartime and soldiers, and it's sort of like being caught in between, you know, right. and people really not understanding, you know, what it's like. I heard that a lot. People don't understand. Yeah. Even, even, I don't know if this is, may not have applied to you, but, you know, nurses that from the ED that would go home, and, and even in their families, right. people wouldn't understand just how bad things were. I don't know if that happened to you or any of your friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another thing that, that you said, which I, which really struck me, you said it was like living five years and five seconds. I feel like looking back on it, I feel like it happened so fast, but in the moment, time was totally discombobulated because, uh-huh. you know, you didn't have normal weekends, didn't exist anymore. You didn't have the normal markers yeah. of your life. Right. And that was one thing when things started to get more normal, that was when I kind of realized I'm not normal. That was kind of the first time that I realized, oh, I'm not okay, was when New York City started to reopen. And that was really hard to, you know, I was excited to go eat outside and go to the park. I still just felt, it's not that I was anxious about going out. I just was I was just anxious in general. Just every part of me was weird. And one thing I noticed, um, maybe other nurses have noticed this, I would have one glass of wine and I would start crying, which is like, and it's not that I was drunk. It was just like that little thing would just like set me off and I would just start crying about COVID. And I was like, that's really weird because I'm not like a lightweight. I don't know. That was like one of the big indicators. And then on top of it, you know, the weight loss, um, those two things combined were a really big sign to me that like, oh, you're going to be like one of those, those people who are weepy after one glass of wine. I was like, am I turning into that person? Like, uh, which is so unlike me. And that was a big sign of like, ooh, I got to handle this. Yeah. 
Well, let's let's talk. If you don't mind, let's talk about that a little bit. I think you know um, Kevin and the Quell Foundation have set up this particular podcast in in part to reach out to people on the front lines who 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 did have the courage to step out and get help. And so um, maybe you can you know tell us a little bit about you know when did you start realizing you know time was all discombobulated right. and then you had you started having this realization that things are not right. What was that like? Well, I was increasingly very anxious. Um, I think all of us were, even people who weren't on the front lines. It's anxiety-inducing, the whole thing. I noticed that I had nightmares. I was super anxious, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. That was one thing. It was like the constant loop of thought. But mm. those all seemed like, okay, yeah, I did this thing. That seems normal. But there was one day, I think it was early June, I was going to work and I'll preface this by saying, you know, my whole life I weighed 130 pounds. Um, I sometimes gain five pounds. I sometimes lose five pounds, but like 130 since middle school. Um, I was getting ready for work and I put my scrub pants on and they fell off my body. They just fell off. I'd use a shoestring to tie them and I go to work. I don't own a scale and I weighed myself and I weighed 110 pounds. Wow. And you hadn't which, noticed that. I had not noticed. That was the craziest thing was I didn't notice. And my boyfriend was like, oh yeah, you look a little skinny. But that to me was like, you know, men don't notice things, whatever. But that to me was the biggest of like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Um, and women know how hard it is to lose weight and to lose it without noticing. Right. So that was my kind of moment of like, I need to go to therapy because wow. this, is, this is bad. <laughs> You know, and, and there's so much, you know, in the news about how um, this pandemic and really syndemic because it's it's economic, it's a social kind of upheaval and how, I mean, you know, you could pick any survey. Kaiser did a survey, maybe half the population is having mental health issues. But actually, then when they look specifically at healthcare providers, the rates are even higher, right? So um, what a powerful story to go that long and not notice and then and almost have your body tell you. Did you kind of immediately think, uh, you know, I think I want to reach out for help or, because that's not an easy moment and a lot of people don't reach out for help. So how did you do it? It took me two weeks to like start looking for a therapist because I, you know, I think we all do that thing of, I was like, well, it's getting hotter in New York City you know, like, oh, it's like heating up in the summer, you're less hungry. I hadn't turned my AC on yet. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm cooking more at home. I'm drinking less because it's the weekend. Like, I'm not going out, you know. I made a lot of excuses. And I think I started to lose even a little more weight. And I was like, no, this is, this is anxiety. Well, and you know, you said something really specific. You said, um, you said anxiety, but then you said, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Right. Yeah. Which is like obsessive. It's totally obsessive. That's an important, you know, thing when, when you feel that, uh, you don't have control over it. So what was your experience? How did you reach out? Who did you go to? How did you know where to go? I originally, I first saw a psychiatrist because I knew it was anxiety, but then he recommended this therapist and it was really just talk therapy because I got to a point where I didn't want to keep talking to my friends or boyfriend about it because I think I recognize that that's you know especially when so much is going on I was like I can't keep talking about the same thing with the same people I also I love ZocDoc 
And there's so many resources. Like um, during the pandemic, there were Talkspace offered it. Like I even downloaded Talkspace um, because it was free for healthcare workers. And then I never used it. And I think because I wanted to speak to someone like on the phone or do Zoom calls because it held me accountable. And it was, it was really just talking about my experience and my anger and my anxiety. And she gave me pretty much very straight, like the thing that she told me to help me gain weight, I've gained like 12 pounds now. Um, she was like, set alarm reminders for meals. Yeah. And that's like such a simple thing, but it helped yeah. so much. I realized I was forgetting to eat. And she was like, just set an alarm. And that was like one of the best things she told me to do. Yeah. A lot of people have this question. They're, they've never done therapy, right? And they don't even know anyone that's done therapy. And we don't do a good job in our business explaining to people what we do anyway. You know, So a lot of people will say, well, what's the difference? I mean, I talk to my boyfriend. I've got my family. I've got my friends. What's the difference if I go talk to the therapist? But you, you really specifically said it's not the same. Their job is to work together with you on these symptoms and these, and they have a lot of experience. I, you know, I talk about it sometimes as going to the psychological gym, basically, and working with a trainer that knows how to work on, like, you know, I want to work on this muscle, uh, this psychological muscle. I'm not noticing that I'm not taking care of my body and eating and they, okay, I know how to move. And you may try working on it yourself, but if you go see a trainer in the gym and you try, you know, they're like, well, you're doing that exercise the wrong way. Here's how you do it. Right. And it's, it's not rocket science. I think you speak. And, and so it sounds like it was, it's been helpful. You, you like your therapist and you feel yes. that you guys have done work, good work together. Super helpful. I think having someone help you also deal with the initial shock. Because yeah. you would think that it would have happened like during the peak, but it was actually the after the peak part. That was the hardest part because yeah. you were like, what just happened? Right. And you're like, right. was that real? And there was so much to process and it just felt like it was so built up right. um, that just going through all these things with someone was yeah. so helpful. So when you were in the adrenaline phase, it was one thing, but it was right after that. And I think yeah. I bet you a lot of people have had that experience. In a minute, I want to get to, you know, we're not out of this thing. So I want to, I'd be interested in your thoughts about what, what's coming next. I know you have a new job, but before that, um, you, a couple of things that you'd mentioned when we talked, I wanted to touch on, and you did today a little bit. Uh, one is leadership, you know, in in the in organizations as a healthcare provider, I wanted to talk to you a little bit um, about that. And then also, um, you, you also talked about how getting through it using your uh, coworker. I mean, the people that you go to work with. Uh, maybe start with that. I mean, how did you? Uh, you know, you talked about it was kind of like you're a little alone. Um, but on the other hand, was it important to have uh, people co coming together, pulling together on the front lines? Yeah. I mean, so our director, I think, came in for two weeks uh, uh -huh. and then we didn't see them again. Uh -huh. We had no staff meetings. Wow. So that's part of the reason why I'm getting a new job is because, you know, I if there is a second wave, I recognize that having strong leadership is so yeah. important. Um, but my coworkers, when it was happening, um, I think after it happened, because we got travel nurses after the peak, and that was kind of when we all could decompress. Um, they let us take some time off, like use our sick uh, days and um, uh -huh. vacation days. It was so helpful to just 
be able to just take a break. I mean, just not going to work for a day is amazing. One night, especially when you work nights, um, we really needed it. Just a break, a mental break. Talking to them, you know, they were there. And I think not even, we actually don't even talk about it that much, but I think there's just this sense of like, just so much love. And yeah, Yeah. it's just this feeling, I don't know, those people, we did it together. It's really powerful for you to say that, you know, my own experience in our system where I work, you know, we, we set up immediately a lot of different resources. We had a hotline, we had just in time therapy, we had a podcast, we had webinars, um, we had peer support programs, and people did access that to some degree. But I also, you know, across the nation, people didn't access those hotlines as much as all of us thought. What they did do is they reached out to each other on the front lines. They reached out to each other and they they used each other for support. And one of the things that comes out of um, literature from the military is that when you look at platoons that go into war and come back, you know, ones that are more likely or less likely to, to develop PTSD, two of the most important things are team cohesion and leadership. So um, and it sounds like your experience of leadership was that there was a lot of opportunity, you know, for it to have been better than it was. And hopefully across the country, we've learned about that. I think a lot of people on the front lines, regardless of, you know, what exactly their role was, were they in the ED or ICU or, or EMS, really felt like they were alone out there. So as we finish up, what are your thoughts about what's coming next? Do you see another surge coming or, um, and how are you preparing? What are, what are, you know, emotionally and, uh, what have you learned or what have we learned as a system going into this next phase? Um, stocking up on toilet paper. No, kidding. (laughs) Um, no, I know that there will be a second wave in New York city, but Mm -hmm. you know, the trains are already packed again. People aren't wearing masks, whatever. But for me, I have faith that, I think knowing it's not as scary anymore. Like I know these patients, I know what to expect. So the whole mystery I think is gone. And yeah, I think that's the biggest thing for me is I know it's going to happen. Yeah. I won't have as many patients. Honestly, coronavirus killed most of the people who in New York city who were at the highest risk. Like those people already went through. So I think the second wave, there'll be less people um, and hopefully that pregnant women, I hope that pregnant women know, like, be really careful. And I think we know how to treat it better, kind of. Yeah. You know what, what word comes to mind as I'm listening to you just now, is this idea of mastery, like human beings really like to have mastery, right? right? Like when you learn how to tie your shoes, or you learn how to ride a bike, and they really don't like not having mastery. So you know, what you really eloquently described at the beginning of this thing, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know how to treat it. We didn't, you know, should we be proning people? I mean, all this stuff, we, right. we just had no mastery. I think for better, for worse, we've learned a lot. And so yes. that comes across as you're talking. And in terms of the emotional stuff, does it feel like a good thing that you have the connection to, uh, you know, uh, I know she's on maternity leave, but, you know, to treatment and to a therapist, but does that feel like that's going to be helpful to have that going into if we have another surge? Yes. Second wave, I will be talking to a therapist every week, if not two times a week. 
I now know that is so important. I think it would also be really nice to have someone, like even though I journaled, I think it would be really nice to have someone to like reflect, you know, because we can't remember things. So I think having another person to talk to throughout another experience would be cool in the sense of like seeing the progress I've made or like they'll remember things that I talked about in the first week going to the end. And I think that's also an interesting perspective to have from someone else. The sessions that I had with my therapist um, during COVID, what they typically look like were, you know, I would talk about what was going on that week, um, my emotional state of that day, which was always changing. One of the big things we worked on was anxiety. And I can't remember if she was the one, no, I'd stopped listening to the news before talking to her, but it was other things like that of just like redirecting the constant loop of thought. She would help redirect me because I would start talking to her and I kind of spiral out and she would redirect me in such a nice way that I'm not able to do the advice of just the advice of setting alarm reminders, but then also, you know, I think for women, the weight loss for me was really weird because like I had an eating disorder as a teenager and um, I was always so conscious of my weight and then to be so skinny and feel weird in my body. I don't know. It's weight is so complicated. And so it was the weight loss for me was so layered. So we really, we even talked about like, body image and how I felt as a teenager about my weight and how I feel now because I never sought help for that when I was in high school but and I've also never talked about it really as an adult so that was really helpful um, just figuring out how I feel about my body now as an adult and that was interesting I think that was like one of the really helpful things and then she also I have always tried to journal but again like I'm so bad at remembering to do it or you get lazy. Um, So she did hold me accountable to like, did you do a journal entry? And she never asked about them, which I liked, you know, it was just like my space. Um, And yeah, that, I think that's helpful. Like I said, with the second wave, you know, getting another therapist to remind you of things. It's nice to have those reminders of where you were at the beginning and it makes you feel proud of your progress that you've made. So first of all, Michaela, it's been just a absolute honor, really an honor to talk with you. I mean, I feel very lucky. You know, you you really were out there. I was not out there. You were out there on the on the front lines, early career nurse, dealt with what came your way and survived it and are thriving and are ready to, you know, you're you're not leaving nursing. You're getting you're staying in it and staying with it. And I think you represent the future of healthcare, you know, and I think folks like you will really, I mean, I, when I grew up in healthcare, I didn't go through what you just went through. So I think we're going to, if there's a silver lining, you guys will know a lot about how systems should be built in the future. And the last thought in my mind, we didn't talk about this yet, but I remember when we, when we talked, I think you said in your hospital where there were like eight or so staff member members who died of COVID. We did. So yeah. that, that they're sort of in my mind, you know, as we're finishing up that um, to kind of bring them to mind, to thank them for, you know, what. Yeah, I also want to thank all the healthcare workers. We were put in a position that we should have never really been put in. Yeah, there were a lot of people who died. 
and thank you to their families and to my coworkers and just the reminder that even if you weren't on the front lines and you're a nurse and you're hearing about this, no matter what your role is in a healthcare system, that, you know, talk to someone, get a therapist, have a journal, you know, your mental health is so important. Going into a second wave, if there is one, you matter. Lift the mask, voices of heroes in a silent pandemic. With Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Qual Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512